This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase this book. The title of this book is Systematic Theology in Two Volumes by Rusas John Rushduni. Copyright 1994. Ross House Books. Chapter 1. Infallibility. Section 1. Infallibility. An Inescapable Concept. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth I tell you of them. Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. God, in this word spoken through the prophet Isaiah, declares that when he speaks, his word surely and infallibly comes to pass. He declares, moreover, that he alone is God, and he will neither share nor give his glory to another. But in our day, as in Isaiah's, many question this declaration. They reduce it to religious poetry, Isaiah's rhetoric, or Hebraic imagery, and they deny to God his sovereignty and to his word its infallibility. This denial is taking its toll of the churches, of society, and of individuals. This toll is a very real one. The immediacy of the word is gone. Instead of the direct and inescapable word of God, a realm of cultural accretions, imagery, myth, and vagueness intervenes. A devout Christian woman, who for many years had attended a church where the doctrine of infallibility was slurred over or rejected, reacted with radiant joy when, at a conference, the doctrine was set forth clearly and unequivocally. Instead of a dullness and joylessness in her faith, she now realized suddenly and happily that the Lord is very near, right here. His very words are speaking to me. The clarity of that faith in the infallible word gives the believer an assurance, strength, and joy in the immediacy of God. Men have lived confidently in darker eras than ours, in the confidence and victory of that faith. Whereas today, the oppression and the fear of evil are very near to men, and the force of God's word is very remote. The historian Friedrich Heer has described the estrangement of man from God in the 13th century as a result of faulty theologies. Quote, the sense of great joy and inward freedom which the early church derived from its possession of the good news, which everyone could read for himself, and its sense of union with the resurrected Lord, had long since been overlaid by feelings of terror and estrangement. Men, at their prayers, no longer raised their arms and turned toward Christ, their rising sun, but folded their hands in the attitude of serfs, serfs of God and of their sin. Where formerly the priest had celebrated the Mass facing the people, in proof of his accessibility, now he turned his back on them and retreated to the vastness of the sanctuary, separated from the people's part of the church by a forbidding screen. Finally, the Mass was read in a tongue the people could not understand. End quote. Whenever people feel that God has no word for them, fear and terror begins to dominate society, and evil roams the streets unafraid. If there is no immediate word from God, the immediate word of evil dominates men's lives. Today, the vitality and the joy is again being drained out of the church, and its strength is ebbing fast. 
The open or the practical denial of the infallibility of Scripture is again exacting a deadly toll in society. The doctrine of the infallibility of Scripture can be denied, but the concept of infallibility as such cannot be logically denied. Infallibility is an inescapable concept. If men refuse to ascribe infallibility to Scripture, it is because the concept has been transferred to something else. The word infallibility is not normally used in these transfers. The concept is disguised and veiled. But, in a variety of ways, infallibility is ascribed to concepts, things, men, and institutions. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, 1881-1955, a Jesuit geologist, was honest enough to speak of the infallibility of the evolutionary process. In speaking of the evolutionary process supposedly at work in the world, he wrote, quote, To bring us into existence, it has from the beginning juggled miraculously with too many improbabilities, for there to be any risk whatever in committing ourselves further and following it right to the end. If it undertook the task, it is because it can finish it, following the same methods and with the same infallibility with which it began. End quote. Because of his belief in the infallibility of evolution, Teilhard could feel confidence as he faced the future. He looked forward, indeed, to an evolutionary Pentecost with the coming of the spirit of the earth. Quote, the atomic age is not the age of destruction, but of union in research. For all their military trappings, the recent explosions at Bikini Herald, the birth into the world of a mankind both inwardly and outwardly pacified, they proclaim the coming of the spirit of the earth. End quote. Teilhard's sorry trade is the infallibility of the sovereign, omnipotent God in his word for the infallibility of a blind, evolving process. Infallibility concepts are all around us, a great variety of substitutes for the infallible word. Democracy is one such substitute. From ancient times, its essential faith has been summed up in the Latin motto, Vox Popula, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. This new God, the people, or democracy, speaks infallibly in and through majorities. One liberal scholar in affirming democracy has emphasized this. Herman Feiner, in Road to Reaction, has noted that, quote, In a democracy, right is what the majority makes it to be, end quote. Not surprisingly, every movement towards democracy has been a direct or indirect attack on Christian orthodoxy. Because democracy has an explicit doctrine of infallibility, it is necessarily a logically hostile to a rival doctrine of infallibility, and the claims of Scripture are either implicitly or explicitly denied. In passing, it could be noted that the philosopher Croce ascribed infallibility to the aesthetic experience. More important to us today is the Marxist dogma of the infallibility of the dictatorship of the pro proletariat. Dr. Leopold de Alvarez has made an interesting analysis of Khrushchev's anti-Stalin speeches. The initial attack on Stalin served an important purpose. It disassociated the new leaders from the crimes of Stalin. It was actually stated that Stalin's writings, long official dogma, contained nothing worthwhile. The attack, however, involved certain dangerous concessions. The infallibility of the dialectical process and of the dictatorship had been seriously endangered. The Marxist theory of contradictions was immediately applied to repair the damage. Society always progresses through contradictions, but socialist society does not have the dangerous and evil class contradictions. 
The contradictions in Soviet society were due to the fact that people reflected backward conditions of production. Stalin's policy were correct, but the contradictions led to paternalism, to the cult of personality, and other problems. The problems of Stalinism sprang, therefore, out of a rotten survival in people's minds. Supposedly, the party had always been alert to the problem and had struggled against it. The conclusion of this rethinking was that the errors of Stalin became the sins of the people, and the party's infallibility was preserved. Khrushchev, in a speech of December 18, 1957, concluded, quote, Stalin will take a due place as a dedicated Marxist-Leninist and a stalwart revolutionary. Our party and the Soviet people will, rem will remember Stalin and pay tribute to him. End quote. Infallibility has always been a basic faith in Marxist dogma, and much of the Marxist power stems from its intense belief in the infallibility of its basic faith. This should not be surprising. For a man to live successfully, he must have an ultimate standing ground. Every philosophy is authoritarian, in that, while it may attack savagely all other doctrines of authority, it does so from the vantage point of a new authority. This new authority is a basic pre-theoretical presupposition which is in totality religious and which rests on a particular concept of infallibility. Every man has his platform from which he speaks. To affirm that foundation without qualification is an inescapable requirement of human thought. It is a naive and foolish error to assume that deliverance from the doctrine of the infallibility of Scripture frees a man's mind from the concept of infallibility. Rather, it means the adoption of a new infallibility as a rival and supposedly liberating concept. Thus, Rousseau, in formulating his dogmas of democracy, plainly asserted the infallibility of the general will of the people. Rousseau emphatically asserted, after developing his doctrine of the will, that, quote, it follows from what has been said above that the general will is right and ever tends to the public advantage, end quote. The infallibility of the general will as embodied in either the majority, the democratic consensus, the dictatorship of the proletariat, the folk, or an elite group is a doctrine which has dominated the world political scene in the 20th century. War has become totalitarian because it has become the clash of infallible philosophies with mutually exclusive claims. The departure of modern man from biblical faith has been an exodus to a new Egypt, another and an enslaving doctrine of infallibility. Similarly, the departure of the Church of Rome from the single ultimate authority of Scripture has not been a denial of infallibility. Infallibility has rather been transferred to the Church. First, it was held implicitly that the Church is infallible, then explicitly so, and, with the First Vatican Council, the infallibility of the Pope under certain conditions was asserted. If this infallibility should at some future date be denied, it will only be in favor of another infallibility concept. Another infallibility concept, succinctly formulated by the deists of the 18th century, is again with us. Alexander Pope declared in his essay on man that, quote, whatever is, is right, end quote. Existentialism has once again affirmed this faith. The validity of any transcendental law, of any standard outside of and beyond man, is denied by the existentialist. For him, reality is, and there is nothing else. Therefore, what is, is infallibly right. 
standards, supremely scripture, must be challenged as opposed to this new reality, in that they are ruled out of court by a presupposition of infallibility in the existential moment. The new left, in terms of these existential premises, opposes the establishment as an alien standard. It seeks revolution, not in terms of any purpose or goal, but simply to overturn everything except the infallible moment. Only man's momentary antinomian will can be allowed to prevail, because it is by definition infallible. Clearly, then, if the infallibility of Scripture is denied, it is denied only in order to ascribe infallibility to nature, to man, or to some aspect or institution of man. But another necessity ensues. A necessary aspect of the doctrine of infallibility is the total self-consciousness of whatever or whoever is infallible. For Orthodox Christians, this means, as Cornelius Van Til has so ably pointed out, that God is totally self-conscious. There is no unconscious or subconscious mind in God, nor does the Almighty God sleep. He is totally self-conscious. There are no hidden potentialities in God. Man, on the contrary, is not totally self-conscious. There are hidden recesses in the mind of man, unrealized potentialities unknown to the person. Man cannot therefore fully determine what he is or what he can do. Many retired people freed from their work develop sometimes surprising potentialities, but no man has ever fully known himself. Solomon observed that man's going are of the Lord, and how can a man then understand his own way? Proverbs 20, 24. The determination of man is not in man, nor does man even have a full self-consciousness about himself. God, on the other hand, not only determines all things, but is totally self-determined and self-conscious. There are no hidden potentialities in God who knows himself totally, and therefore, when he speaks, speaks authoritatively and infallibly. An infallible word requires a totally self-conscious speaker who can speak in total knowledge of himself and his abilities. Not surprisingly, Sartre saw this dilemma and, at the beginning of his analysis of existential man, attacked the Freudian concept of the unconscious. What is repressed by the mind, Sartre held, is knowingly repressed in order to escape from difficulties. There is much to be said for Sartre's thesis, but the reason for his attack on the subconscious is in a study of ontology is what concerns us. Sartre, as an existentialist, frankly states that the goal of man is to be God. Quote, Man, fundamentally, is the desire to be God. End quote. In the existentialist sense, quote, man makes himself man in order to be God. End quote. A true God, however, must have full self-consciousness, and hence Sartre finds it imperative to deny the concept of the unconscious. Thus, an infallible word must come from a self-conscious source, from one who speaks in full knowledge of himself and his abilities. But this is not enough. An authoritative and infallible word requires not only total self-consciousness, but also total power, omnipotence, in order to speak the word and then bring it to pass. The God of Scripture, who is totally self-conscious and has no hidden potentialities, declares, I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi 3.6 This no man can say, in that both lacking perfection and having hidden potentialities, man both changes and is in need of continuing change. Man grows and regresses. God, on the other hand, does not change. 
and being omnipotent, can declare his word and bring it to pass. Hence the challenge issued through Isaiah. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God, being omnipotent and totally self-conscious, can predict because his word is the controlling word. God's word comes out of his unchanging and omnipotent being, and the word of God is thus of necessity infallible. The only word the sovereign and triune God can speak is an infallible word. To deny the infallibility of the word of God is inescapably to deny the God of Scripture. When the omnipotent God speaks, his word is of necessity infallible. This is the only kind of word that God can declare, because God is God. It is utterly impossible for God ever to speak a word which is not infallible. Omnipotence plus total self-consciousness necessitates an infallible word. Therefore, anyone who denies the infallibility of Scripture is saying that God is not sovereign, that He can neither predestine nor predict. To No prophecy can then come from God. Deny infallibility, and the only God that remains, if any, is a struggling, weak, and stammering God, incapable of knowing Himself or of issuing an eternal decree. This is not the God of Scripture. A sovereign, predestinating, self-conscious God can declare only an infallible word. When infallibility then is transferred to some false God, these other attributes of God must be transferred also. Omnipotence and omniscience must then be ascribed to some new agency. Teilhard ascribed them to evolution. Others to the dictatorship of the proletariat, to philosopher kings, to the general will or to whatever else is the new God of man and society. Because the modern state, in all its variations, is based on Rousseau's concept of the infallible general will, it is moving steadily towards totalitarianism, seeking total power over man. Marxism openly gives us the dictatorship of the proletariat, plus total planning and control. Total planning is the statist version of predestination. The doctrine of predestination is, of course, the doctrine of total planning and control. To hold to the eternal decree of God is to say simply that God, from the beginning, planned, predicted, and totally controls everything that comes to pass. The modern state, as the new God, seeks total control over man in order to speak an infallible word, in order to experiment with man and control him from cradle to grave. Planning is thus increasingly a necessary aspect of the modern state because the modern state wants to predict, to prophesy, to control. The goal is total planning in order to prophesy, total control for total power. Infallibility is thus an inescapable concept. What we face today is not an abandonment of the doctrine of infallibility, but its transfer from God to man, from God's word to man's word. But Isaiah warns us, God declares, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. Isaiah 42.8 Thus speaks the Lord, He who is. We are, therefore, in a state of war. War between heaven and humanism. War between the Almighty God and the totalitarian state. War between God and the scientific planners, predictors, and controllers. War between God and all those who deny his infallibility. Such a conflict is a very uneven one, and there can be no doubt as to the outcome of this war. 
God will not share his glory, nor give it to another. Even as the builders of the Tower of Babel were confounded and scattered, even as Pharaoh and his host were destroyed and his troops swallowed up in the Red Sea, even as God declared his judgment on Amalek, and Amalek is gone, even as Assyria and Babylon and the empires of old were brought down to dust, so those who today deny his infallible word and ascribe infallibility to the things of man shall be brought low by the Lord of hosts. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John 5.4 What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8.37 We have the infallible word of the infallible God. Let Christian men rejoice, therefore, for our God is Lord of lords, King of kings, the mighty conqueror. Section 2. Infallibility and Immanence The concept of infallibility, when denied to God and His Word, does not disappear. Instead, it is transferred to another area. Historically, as Christendom turned to Aristotle and to natural law, the concept of infallibility came into a new prominence as church, state, and school claimed it for themselves. Within the church, it developed into the doctrine of papal infallibility, and in some cases, the divine right of presbytery and like concepts. Although the doctrine had deep roots in scholasticism and the medieval church, it was not formally defined until the First Vatican Council in 1870. Quote, we, adhering faithfully to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith, with a view to the glory of our divine Savior, the exaltation of the Catholic religion, and the safety of Christian peoples, the sacred council approving, teach and define as a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when fulfilling the office of pastor and teacher of all Christians, on his supreme apostolical authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the universal church, through the divine assistance promised him in blessed Peter, is endowed with that infallibility with which the divine Redeemer has willed that his church, is defining doctrine concerning faith or morals, should be equipped, and, therefore, that such definitions of the Roman pontiff of themselves, and not by virtue of the consent of the church, are irreformable. If anyone shall presume, which God forbid, to contradict this, our definition, let him be anathema." End quote. This statement has been cited not only to illustrate the development of a non-biblical doctrine of infallibility, but also to call attention to the fact that it is the most modest of all such claims in the modern world. Men have given undue attention to this papal authority as an example of an obsolete and authoritarian belief in the supposedly rational and scientific climate of the modern era. In this, they have simply revealed their own hostility to the Church. Without giving assent to this dogma of papal infallibility, let us analyze its relative modesty. P.J. Tenor has commented on the meaning of the dogma. Quote, For the correct understanding of this definition, it is to be noted, in the first place, that what is claimed for the Pope is infallibility merely, not impeccability or inspiration. In the next place, the infallibility claimed for the Pope is the same in its nature, scope, and extent 
as that which the church as a whole possesses, nor does his ex-cathedra teaching, in order to be infallible, require to be ratified by the church's consent. The pope teaching ex-cathedra is an independent organ of infallibility. In the third place, infallibility is not attributed to every doctrinal act of the pope, but only to his ex-cathedra teaching, and the conditions required for ex-cathedra teaching are mentioned in the Vatican Decree. A. The pontiff must teach in his public and official capacity as a theologian, preacher, or allocutionist, not in his capacity as a temporal prince or as a mere ordinary of the diocese of Rome. It must be clear that he speaks as spiritual head of the church universal. B. Then it is only when, in this capacity, he teaches some doctrine of faith or morals that he is infallible. C. Further, it must be sufficiently evident that he intends to teach with all the fullness and finality of his supreme apostolic authority. In other words, that he wishes to determine some point of doctrine in an absolutely final and irrevocable way, or to define it in the technical sense. These are well-recognized formulae by means of which the defining intention may be manifested. D. Finally, for an ex-cathedra decision it must be clear that the Pope intends to bind the whole Church, to demand internal assent from all the faithful to his teaching under pain of incurring spiritual shipwreck, naufragium fide, according to the expression used by Pius IX in defining the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin." There are thus some limitations on papal infallibility, as Father James F. Wathen has pointed out. Quote, Whereas the Supreme Pontiff's authority is coextensive with his jurisdiction, his infallibility is not. End quote. However, the infallibility of the Church flows out of papal infallibility in Roman Catholic doctrine. Quote, the Church, as the source and cause of salvation, stands on the papacy as a building stands on its foundation. Its imperishability derives from the papacy, from the infallibility of the papacy. End quote. And the same is true of the Church's infallibility. On the other hand, quote, Our notion of infallibility should include only what we are required to believe and nothing else. End quote. Wathen's arguments, as he then develops them, would be disputed by some Roman Catholic theologians. But that fact illustrates the problem. The doctrine of papal infallibility is a limited doctrine, and its meaning is open to debate. Thus, while not agreeing with the most conspicuous example of a modern doctrine of infallibility, we must all the same call attention to its limitations. These limitations exist because the doctrine is to a large degree tied not only to a tradition, but to a historic faith and a supernatural revelation. The restrictions imposed by that history and revelation are severe ones. When we come to the doctrine of the infallibility of the state, the restrictions quickly disappear. The doctrine of the divine right of kings appeared when Christian doctrine still imposed some hesitation on royalist philosophy, but the claims were still very extravagant. Hume has called attention to the practical application of the doctrine in the reign of Elizabeth I of England, when Parliament protested the granting of various economic monopolies to men favored by the crown. Quote, These grievances, the most intolerable for the present, and the most pernicious in their consequences that ever were known in any age or under any government, had been mentioned in the last Parliament, and a petition had been presented to the Queen, complaining of the patents, but she still persisted in defending her monopolies against her people, 
a bill was now introduced into the lower house abolishing all these monopolies and as the former application had been unsuccessful a law was insisted on as the only certain expedient for correcting these abuses the courtiers on the other hand maintained that this matter regarded the prerogative and that the commons could never hope for success if they did not make application in the most humble and respectful manner to the queen's goodness and beneficence the topics which were advanced in the house and which came equally from the courtiers and the country gentlemen and were admitted by both will appear the most extraordinary to such as are presupposed with an idea of the privileges enjoyed by the people during that age and of the liberty possessed under the administration of elizabeth it was asserted that the queen inherited both an enlarging and restraining power by her prerogative she might set at liberty what was restrained by statute or otherwise and by her prerogative she might restrain what was otherwise at liberty that the royal prerogative was not to be canvassed nor disputed nor examined and did not even admit of any limitation that absolute princes such as the sovereigns of england were a species of divinity that it was in vain to attempt tying the queen's hands by laws or statutes since by means of her dispensing power she could loosen herself at pleasure and that even if a clause should be annexed to a statute excluding her dispensing power she could first dispense with that clause and then with the statute after all this discourse more worthy of a turkish divan than of an english house of commons according to our present idea of this assembly the queen who perceived how odious monopolies had become and what heats were likely to arise sent for the speaker and desired him to acquaint the house that she would immediately cancel the most grievous and oppressive of these patents the house was struck with astonishment and admiration and gratitude at this extraordinary instance of the queen's goodness and condescension a member said with tears in his eyes that if a sentence of everlasting happiness had been pronounced in his favor he could not have felt more joy than that with which he was at present overwhelmed another observed that this message from the sacred person of the queen was a kind of gospel or glad tidings and ought to be received as such and be written in the tablets of their hearts and it was further remarked that in the same manner as the deity would not give his glory to another so the queen herself was the only agent in their present prosperity and happiness the house voted that the speaker with a committee should ask permission to wait on her majesty and return thanks to her for her gracious concessions to her people "the kings of england were a species of divinity even though not always sane nor housebroken cromwell who recognized the popular faith in kings dismissed a proposal to place charles stuart later charles ii on the throne saying quote, he is so damnably debauched he would undo us all give him a shoulder of mutton and a whore that's all he cares for" end quote yet after cromwell's death when charles ii was placed on the throne a trial of the regicides was held this court refused to consider the case against charles i as a traitor to the people of england in terms of the original feudal character of the throne instead the modern doctrine of the divine right of kings was used to rule any and every act against the crown as morally religiously and legally wrong this was clear in the opening remarks of sir orlando bridgeman chief baron of the exequier and presiding judge quote, the trial opened on tuesday october 9 1660 
with the presiding judge's charge to the jury. Bridgman traced the legal position of the monarchy from the earliest times, showing that no single person or community of persons has any coercive power over the king of England, that the king was supreme governor, subject to none but God, and could do no wrong, and that if he could do no wrong, he could not be punished for any wrong." Related to this idea of the king's divinity was the belief in the healing power of the king's touch. After 1688, this concept of divine right was transferred to Parliament. Even as Bridgman had held that Charles I could do no wrong, so in 1946 the Attorney General of England, Cyril Hartley Shawcross, MP, declared, quote, Parliament is sovereign. It may make any laws. It could ordain that all blue-eyed babies be destroyed at birth. End quote. This is an explicit assertion of Parliament's sovereignty. It is also implicitly an assertion of infallibility, since it recognizes no sovereign power or law beyond Parliament. In the Soviet Union, the issue of infallibility came to the fore in the aftermath of Khrushchev's speech of February 25, 1956, attacking the work of Stalin. This step gained the new rulers some popularity, but it raised serious questions with respect to the Marxist faith in the infallible working of the dictatorship of the proletariat as the manifestation of historical process. Second thoughts, prompted by Chinese communist critics, led to some serious misgivings. Quote, if even an outstanding Marxist-Leninist, the leader of the party, can become a victim of these contradictions, then surely all other leaders of the party may become similarly divorced from the actual conditions of society, and it is not possible then for the party and the government to become isolated from the people. These questions were not answered in, this, in the 5th April editorial, but they were answered later, and the answer was yes, indeed it was possible. But such an answer struck at the foundation of orthodox communist theory itself, which held that no such possibility could ever occur. The party, at least, was infallible in its knowledge of the historical process. As a result, there was some backtracking, and, in his 1957 speech on the 40th anniversary of the October Revolution, Khrushchev restored Stalin to his, quote, due place as a dedicated Marxist-Leninist and stalwart revolutionary. Our party and the Soviet people will remember Stalin and pay tribute to him, end quote. In every modern state, in varying degrees, there is a working doctrine of the infallibility of the state. There is a hesitancy about an open formulation of the concept, but it is nonetheless present. Those who hold to democracy, to the belief that the voice of the people is the voice of God, vox populi, vox dei, look to the people's voices in its lowest expression, in the masses, in minority groups, prisoners, perverts, and others who are held to be representatives of the people rather than of vested interests. Talman has cited the opinions of Mazzini and others to illustrate the belief in the infallibility of the people. Quote, the Spirit of God can only descend upon the gathered multitudes. It is for them to say what they believe or do not believe. We believe in the infallibility of the people, but we put no trust in men. Only the totality of the individual people is God's church. Rulers, party leaders, parties themselves may err. The mass can never err. Individuals may often seduce and exercise an evil influence on the masses, but they can never in the last resort completely deprave or stifle man's conscience. 
Sooner or later, the real good nature of the people reasserts itself. And the men of conscience are in the majority, and that majority has always the superiority of a purer sentiment, of better sense, of a calmer conscience, over those who separate themselves from the people. End quote. After Rousseau, the belief in the infallibility of the people also meant the infallibility of an elite who can incarnate the general will of democratic society. This elite can know the democratic consensus better than the ballot box, and thus are the supposed expression of the infallibility of the social order. This was the belief of the leaders of the French Revolution. Quote, it was to be a committee of the most faithful and most ruthless. This was the conception underlying the regime of the Committee of Public Safety and Jacobin Dictatorship, a regime designed to make the revolutionary purpose triumph at all costs, and not to realize liberty in the sense of free self-expression, a system which replaced the principle of popular choice by the principle of the infallibility of the enlightened few in the central body, acting in a dictatorial manner through special agents appointed by themselves." It should be noted that such non-Christian scholars do not hesitate to use the word infallibility in describing the authority of the modern state and its ruling elite. A prerogative of God has been appropriated by the state. Moreover, the state, like God, increasingly claims total jurisdiction over every area of life and an omnicompetence in every sphere. The state has become the new agency in whom man lives and moves and has his being. See following Acts 17.28. Man now addresses his prayers and petitions to the state, which he believes to be his hope of salvation. The school no less than the state lays claim to infallibility. An infallible organ is beyond criticism. Christians hold the Bible to be its own interpreter and thus its own standard. It is the characteristic of an infallible organ or agency that is free from external constraint, criticism, or judgment. All of these aspects of the doctrine have been incorporated into the dogma of academic freedom. This dogma had its origins in the medieval era and has since been greatly expanded. The academy, it is held, is beyond criticism by any standard extraneous to itself. Teachers and professors are ostensibly free to teach whatever they choose, in contempt of the trustees of the school, because their profession gives them an immunity. The clergy's immunity before the civil courts in earlier centuries was a very limited one. The new clergy of the schools claims total immunity from all jurisdictions, even in the face of the most ridiculous performances. Thus, in a Cranston, Rhode Island high school in 1972, a teacher of an innovative social studies program called Economics and Politics in the Community, George O'Neill, invited a prostitute to speak with his 40 pupils. In the uproar that followed, a teacher, who asked not to be identified, said that 99% of the faculty and most of the pupils who understand the situation support O'Neill. It is a question of academic freedom. The teacher can do no wrong, clearly. Examine again the claims made in Parliament for Elizabeth I, that her prerogative was not to be canvassed, nor disputed, nor examined, and did not even admit of any limitation. Is not this the thesis of academic freedom? A teacher can strip herself naked in a sex education class. It is academic freedom. A professor can incite students to revolutionary violence. It is academic freedom. 
by virtue of their teaching office, such people are supposedly beyond criticism, and their very absurdity has some esoteric and infallible meaning which vindicates them always. Infallibility is not an obsolete doctrine. It is very much with us. It has simply been transferred from the Word of God to the Word and Institutions of Man. Section 3. The Dependent Word of Man Frederick Nietzsche gives us a telling example of the infallibility concept and its inescapability. In Nietzsche, we have a denial of the God of Scripture and of the God of Hegel, the modern deification of history as it incarnates itself in the totalitarian state. Nietzsche is also hostile to all morality. Good and evil, good and bad, must be dropped in favor of a life beyond morality. Even more, man and life must be negated, and the Superman is the one who negates all things. As Nietzsche observed, quote, The sight of man now fatigues. What is present-day nihilism if it is not that? We are tired of man. End quote. All the same, Nietzsche wrote, he spoke, and, however much he denied all other values, he did not deny the validity of his word. Nietzsche waged war against the idea of an objective, created, and given world, and against the concomitant idea also of an objective, God-given, and absolute moral order, in line with all modern philosophy. After Descartes, and especially in terms of Kant, Nietzsche was emphatic in his denial of an objective and real world. The only world is the world of the mind of autonomous man, and of the appearances his mind synthesizes. In Nietzsche's words, quote, It is of cardinal importance that the real world should be suppressed. It is the most formidable inspirer of doubts and depreciator of values concerning the world which we are. It was our most dangerous attempt heretofore on the life of life. War against all the hypothesis upon which a real world has been imagined. The notion that moral values are the highest values belongs to this hypothesis. The superiority of the moral valuation would be refuted if it could be shown to be the result of an immoral valuation, a specific case of real immorality. It would thus reduce itself to an appearance, and as an appearance, it would cease from having any right to condemn appearance. End quote. No things in themselves exist, only the knowing mind. It follows, therefore, that since there is no objective framework of reference and no things in themselves, that the only error man can make is to assume that knowledge has an actual correlation with a real world which leads to an accurate understanding thereof. Knowledge is for Nietzsche, the freedom of the mind from an objective reality and its ability, even as it is conditioned by things, to condition them in turn. As a result, the more a man severs himself from God and the world as objective realities, the more clearly he speaks and, in fact, becomes infallible. In Esche Homo, Nietzsche wrote of his composition of Thus Spake Zarathustra in these terms. Quote, Can anyone at the end of this 19th century possibly have any distinct notion of what poets of a more vigorous period meant by inspiration? If not, I should like to describe it. Provided one has the slightest remnant of superstition left, one can hardly reject completely the idea that one is the mere incarnation or mouthpiece or medium of some almighty power. The notion of revelation describes the condition quite simply, by which I mean that something profoundly convulsive and disturbing suddenly become visible and audible 
with indescribably definiteness and exactness. One hears, one does not seek. One takes, one does not ask who gives. A thought flashes out like lightning, inevitably without hesitation. I have never had any choice about it. There is an ecstasy whose terrific tension is sometimes released by a flood of tears, during which one's progress varies from involuntary impetuosity to involuntary slowness. There is the feeling that one is utterly out of hand, with the most distinct consciousness of an infinitude of shuddering thrills that pass through from head to foot. There is a profound happiness in which the most painful and gloomy feelings are not discordant in effect, but are required as necessary colors in this overflow of light. There is an instinct for rhythmic relations, which embraces an entire world of forms, lengths, the need for a widely extended rhythm, is almost a measure of the force of inspiration, a sort of counterpart to its pressure and tension. Everything occurs quite without volition, as if an eruption of freedom, independence, power, and divinity. The spontaneity of the image and everything occurs quite without volition, as if in an eruption of freedom, independence, power, and divinity. The spontaneity of the image and similes is most remarkable. One loses all perception of what is imagery and simile. Everything offers itself as the most immediate, exact, and simple means of expression. If I may recall a phrase of Zarathustra's, it actually seems as if the things themselves come to one and offer themselves as similes. Quote, Here do all things come caressingly to thy discourse and flatter thee, for they would fain ride upon thy back. On every simile thou ridest here to every truth. Here fly open before thee all the speech and word shrines of existence. Here all existence would become speech. Here all becoming would learn of thee how to speak. End quote. This is my experience with inspiration. I have no doubt that I should have to go back millenniums to find another who could say to me, It is mine also. End quote. For Nietzsche thus, his writing was an expression of divinity, a revelation, an inspiration. Thus spake Zarathustra, apes, in style, the Bible, and ancient epics. It is about as, as successful as Ossian and Joseph Smith. As against the immaculate perception of those who want a valid scientific knowledge of things in themselves, Nietzsche offered the true way as, quote, Dare only to believe in yourselves, in yourselves and in your inward parts. He who does not believe in himself always lieth, end quote. In 20th century existentialism, this means that the only truth is existential truth. The dictates of one's own being as expressed without the influence of God, man, society, morals and mores, or anything external to the biological impulses of the man. Infallibility now means total separation from the external world, and from the past and future. History cannot be allowed to condition the existential moment. For Sartre, this means freedom from personal history. He denied Freud's idea of the unconscious, of the id, ego, and superego in favor of a free, translucent consciousness. Psychological determinism cannot become for Sartre a primary factor in the mind of man. It is the free mind of autonomous man speaking in the existential moment that has true knowledge. In fact, Sartre held, quote, Knowledge puts us in the presence of the absolute and... There is a truth of knowledge, but this truth, although releasing us to nothing more and nothing less than the absolute, remains strictly human. End quote. Sartre and Nietzsche did not use the word infallibility, but this is what they were talking about. 
For Sartre, the goal of man is to become God, and this is attainable only on existential grounds, although a meaningless and futile passion even in attainment. The same is no less true of Nietzsche. In fact, basic to the drive of modern philosophy is the goal of philosophers to become gods. As a result, modern philosophers like the Greek thinkers and Aristotle's pupil, Alexander the Great, have hated or avoided women as a drag on their divinity. This was emphatically true of Nietzsche, who despised marriage, and no less true of his follower, Adolf Hitler, whose life and works are echoes of Nietzsche. Nietzsche wrote, quote, It is an accepted and indisputable fact, so long as there are philosophers in the world, and wherever philosophers have existed, from India to England, to take the opposite pole of philosophic ability, that there exists a real irritation and rancor on the part of philosophers towards sensuality. There similarly exists a real philosophic bias and affection for the whole ascetic ideal. There should be no illusions on this score. Both these feelings, as has been said, belong to the type. If a philosopher lacks both of them, then he is, you may be certain of it, never anything but a pseudo. Every animal, including la bête philosophe, strives instinctively after an optimum of favorable conditions, under which he can let his whole strength have play, and achieves his maximum consciousness of power, with equal instinctiveness, and with a fine perceptive flair which is superior to any reason. Every animal shudders mortally at every kind of disturbance and hindrance which obstructs or could obstruct his way to that optimum. It is not his way to happiness of which I am talking, but his way to power, to action, the most powerful action, and in point of fact in many cases his way to unhappiness. Similarly, the philosopher shudders mortally at marriage, together with all that could persuade him to it, marriage as a fatal hindrance on the way to the optimum. Up to the present, what great philosophers have married? Heraclitus, Plato, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Kant, Schopenhauer? They were not married, and, further, one cannot imagine them as married. A married philosopher belongs to comedy. That is my rule. As for that exception of a Socrates, the malicious Socrates married himself, it seems, Ironis, just to prove this very rule. So many bridges to independence are shown in the ascetic ideal that the philosopher cannot refrain from exaltation and clapping of hands when he hears the history of all those resolute ones who on one day uttered a nigh to all servitude and went into some desert even granting that they were only strong asses and the absolute opposite of strong minds. What, then, does the ascetic ideal mean in a philosopher? This is my answer. It will have been guessed long ago. When he sees this ideal, the philosopher smiles because he sees therein an optimum of the conditions of the highest and boldest intellectuality. He does not thereby deny existence. He rather affirms thereby his existence, and only his existence, and this perhaps to the point of not being far off the blasphemous wish, periat mundus, fiat philosophia, fiat philosophus, fiam, end quote. In the above passage, Nietzsche also cites Buddha favorably, with Buddha's contempt for life. Nietzsche is emphatically the great yea-sayer to death and destruction, not to life. Nietzsche's savage hatred of women, because the pull of sex is a reminder of humanity and of dependence, a difficult things for a would-be God to admit to, is apparent in work after work. In Thus Spake Zarathustra, he gave us women's only use recreation for the warrior's play. All else is folly. 
However, warrior man or superman should go into a woman only with care. Quote, Thou goest to woman, do not forget thy whip. End quote. This latter remark was apparently commonly used by Nietzsche before he wrote, Thus Spake Zarathustra, because a year earlier a woman he loved intensely, but who did not return his love, Lou Salom, had Nietzsche and Paul Ri assume the place of animals in harness to a cart while she sat in the cart with a whip. Moreover, Nietzsche's contempt for marriage was in part dishonest. Women had repeatedly refused his marriage offer. Usually this means, however, that a man has asked where he is sure of refusal, so that he can cherish a resentment against women. A great many more philosophers than Nietzsche named have not married, and, unlike Nietzsche, more than a few have not even pretended to try. Some have been homosexual as well. Why this avoidance of marriage? Nietzsche has given us part of the answer. The autonomy claimed by modern philosophy from God has, as Sartre plainly states, the goal of becoming God. Now God needs no helpmeet, man emphatically does. To need a helpmeet, to be dependent on a woman, to be delighted with her, rely on her, be easily hurt or moved by her, is the mark of a man, a creature. Human dependency is in every direction natural and supernatural, on God and man, on the earth and on air, on plants and on animals, on superiors and inferiors. Marriage in particular makes the fact of this dependency intensely personal. Feminists are under the illusion sometimes that, because Christian faith requires authority to be given to the man, the woman is placed in a position of dependence on the man, rather than vice versa. Nothing could be more wrong. On the human scene, the greater the authority, the greater the dependence, because human authority, to the extent that it, it increases, also increases human dependence. The dependence of a worm on the world and on other worms is far less than that of a man on the world and on other men. The greater the authority of any man, the more dependent he is on a great number of persons, things, and factors. Every increase of authority is at the same time an increase in dependency. A hermit has little authority and a minimum dependency by separating himself from other men. He has also separated himself from authority over them. A general is of necessity dependent on more people to maintain his authority and purpose than is the private, who, having little authority, also needs others less to do his limited duties. All men are interdependent, and no man is born out of nothing. But the more man advances in authority, the more his dependence grows. The same is true of civilization. Advancement means an increased dependency. Men in a backward country are less dependent on one another and on foreign trade than in a highly developed one, where specialization leads to greater interdependence as well as greater power and authority. It is an illusion of the ignorant and the foolish that independence from other men comes with increased authority. This illusion is part of the mythology of autonomous man and his will to forsake the human condition. It is also an important factor in the ready decay of humanistic power. Human authority collapses when it not denies independence. There is thus a marked difference between God's absolute and autonomous being and authority and man's created and dependent being and authority. Man's word, moreover, is a dependent word. It depends on his oath, for example, upon the name, authority, and fear of the judgment of the sovereign God. Epistemologically, man's word depends on the certainty and trustworthiness of God's word and world. Man's word is a totally dependent word, and God's word is a totally independent, sovereign, and infallible word, which man's word can never be. When man claims such an infallible word, he must play God and must deny independence. 
and his most basic personal dependence is on women. But to deny his dependency is to deny his manhood without becoming a god. Few philosophers are as honest as Gaudier's character in a novel, who cries out, quote, Why am I not God, since I cannot be a man? End quote. The existentialist faith, however, stresses this goal of independence for men and women, and the result is not only a studied immoralism, but a sense of infallibility and radical self-righteousness. The modern mood is the ultimate in Phariseeism as a consequence. In the various men's magazines which stress nudes, the brief interviews with the nude models almost always stress existential humanism with all its self-righteousness, as one such girl of 21, describing her deliverance into the new faith, declared, quote, I'm discovering my own integrity in L.A., discovering that I'm really a very honest person, and I like that. I like almost everything, in fact. I love everything. I have no hang-ups about sex. With the right man and with the right relaxed attitude, sex is the most exciting thing I know. There's got to be more to a man, of course, than just a nice body. I've been to bed with men who were incredibly good-looking and said goodbye to them the next morning, not even wanting to see them again. When you're just horny and want to get laid, you find the best-looking, most viral man you can. But to get it all together, you need the body and the mind." End quote. For Nietzsche, the fear of involvement with women was very great. For contemporary existentialism, sex, for man and women alike, is depersonalized. It is a form of masturbation with another being, and some have held solitary masturbation to be the highest form of existential sex. Betty Dodson has praised masturbation, writing, quote, Socially institutionalized dependent sex is depersonalizing. Masturbation can help return sex to its proper place, to the individual, end quote. A professor, Dr. Joseph Lo Piccolo, has, quote, written a nine-step masturbation program, end quote. For many others, fornication and group sex are best without emotional involvement, for example, when impersonal and physical in the main. However, in using and depersonalizing others, such people have only depersonalized themselves. Their pure fountain of existential infallibility is the old fountain of sin and self-righteousness. The end of Nietzsche was madness, but, as Lou Salome saw very early, his philosophy was always madness. The dependent creature can speak only a dependent and fallible word. Section 4. Infallibility and Meaning Because God is the absolute creator of all things, and because nothing exists outside of Him or apart from His creating decree, all things have their existence and their meaning from their sovereign creator, God. God, having no unconscious aspect in His being, is totally self-conscious and purposive in all his ways, so that all creation is a universe of total meaning. There is not a meaningless fact or atom in all creation, nor an event, nor any facet or aspect of anything that is not marked by total meaning. The meaning of most things elude us. We do not understand the meaning of mosquitoes, for example, or the hairs that fall from our head, nor of the often unhappy events in our lives because we tend to look for their meaning in terms of ourselves. The meaning of all things is theocentric, God-centered, not man-centered, which means that of necessity, things are meaningless if we try to read them in terms of man, in terms of ourselves. We do not create them, govern them, nor more than slightly, in a limited area and manner, influence them. They are of God's 
ordination. Attempts to read the meaning of things humanistically are thus erroneous, futile, and blasphemous. All the same, however, men insist on trying to force their meaning on history and to ascribe a totally humanistic meaning to events and things. If meaning is derived from man, then man's creative man is also spontaneously infallible. His every expression is an expression of original meaning. If man is ultimate, then man is creative, and his expressions have a naturally ultimate and infallible character. It is this premise which undergirds, for example, Sigmund Freud. For Freud, the study of man's dreams was important. Dreams, being less censored than conscious thought and speech, are an expression of the spontaneous and creative mind, the id and the ego, and therefore infallible. The truth about man, thus, is not to be derived from the Bible, from a source extraneous to man, but from man's unconscious and spontaneous mind as it expresses itself in dreams. Dreams, thus, had a total and infallible meaning for Freud. Man was to be known, and his meaning understood in terms of his dreams. Infallibility was thus transferred by Freud from God to man's unconscious mind. And meaning became an aspect of the unconscious as against the conscious mind. For Marxism, with its doctrine of the infallibility of the dictatorship of the proletariat, the socialist state became the new vehicle of infallibility. Alexander Dolgan reports what other prisoners have also confirmed, that the Marxist state insists on infallibility. When arrested, Dolgan was told by his communist inquisitor, Sidorov, after Dolgan protested that the charges against him were false, quote, You say we have made a mistake. I tell you, we never make mistakes. End quote. According to Scripture, all things have total meaning in terms of God. For humanism, all things are either meaningless, or else all things must derive their meaning from man or from an agency of man. In terms of this, Communist regimes ascribe total meaning to all things in terms of the attitudes and views of the communist state. The, the illustrations of this are many. For example, George Tenno was, during World War II, a commander in the Navy of the Soviet Union. Quote, Assigned as intelligence liaison officer with the British during the war, and often traveling on convoys bringing supplies in through Archangel and Murmansk, on his last return trip he became very friendly with the captain of the British cruiser he was assigned to. This man was promoted to vice-admiral after the war. In 1948, recalling George's fondness for a certain brand of British pipe tobacco, the vice-admiral had sent a Christmas card to Moscow with a pouch of the tobacco. At this time, George was undergoing special training. His English was excellent, and he was going to be sent to the United States as a spy. But the MGB decided that this Christmas message from a British vice-admiral smacked of conspiracy. They arrested both George and his wife, Natalie. For two years, he was interrogated and had a very bad time. Finally, he was sent to Jekyllskan and Natalie to a camp in the far north, both with 25 years for high treason, quote. For the communist regime, there could be no meaning except the total meaning of dialectical materialism. In terms of this total meaning, no independent, harmless act between a capitalist and a communist was possible. The Christmas card and tobacco pouch thus had total meaning as evidence of conspiracy. In a humanistic world, because it is not undergirded by God's total meaning, either meaninglessness or man's total meaning will govern. The result is tyranny, in that man's every act is then interpreted by the arbitrary purposes of the state. The purposes of the state, moreover, 
are not open and known to man as are the purposes of God by means of his infallible word. Because of the doctrine of evolution, a cosmic purpose and meaning are denied. Sociology, a humanistic principle, denies meaning. Since Conti, in favor of technology, there is no good or evil in the universe, nor purpose, nor meaning. There is only the immediate and pragmatic demand of the state, utilitarian, opportunistic, relativistic, and unpredictable. Meaning is thus ad hoc, for the moment. If such a thing can be called meaning, it is existential, governed by the needs of the moment and subject to no law. As a result, such a demand or act of state or of man is infallible. It is beyond appeal. The Marquis de Sade insisted that every act of perversion, crime, or violence was an infallible act required by nature or by the biological urge of the moment. There could thus be no condemnation of any act of existential man, nor any law over man. The only offense for Sade was Christianity, with its insistence on an infallibility apart from man and his biological urge. For the modern state, infallibility is similarly existential. The needs of the moment dictate the law of the moment, against which there is no law. The infallibility of the existential state is a logical development of all forms of Hegelianism, Marxist, fascist, and democratic. The moment alone is real, and the moment is total and infallible. There is no other God than the moment, and the actor who seizes the moment is its infallible prophet. There is thus no defense against humanism and its tyranny apart from the infallible word of God, and an unwavering stand in terms of the sovereign and total decree of the triune God of Scripture. Section 5. The Canon of Covenant Law A sovereign, omnipotent, and omniscient God can speak only an infallible and inerrant word. Because of the very nature of his being, God's every word is an infallible and inerrant word. Man can speak only a tentative word because he cannot infallibly predict, govern, or determine the future. Man's every word is thus a tentative statement, even when he speaks of his own existence. Descartes, coquito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, was delivered as an assured and inerrant starting point for man. Here was an infallible starting point for man which was ostensibly an autonomous one, free from the supposed problems of God's inscripturated word. Descartes began with the fact of sheer existence. He assumed that thinking by this supposedly autonomous I, or person, was sound. Objective reasoning, a tremendous act of faith and contradicting the obvious fact of man's total depravity, his twisted reasoning, and his subjective perspective. Moreover, the fact of sheer existence and some kind of thinking did not establish any grounds for his presupposition of autonomy. Descartes' existence and thinking were derivative and conditioned factors so that, instead of being a starting point, they were themselves a chain of consequences. Moreover, why should Descartes, thinking his cogito, have priority over his parents' cogito, and that of any possible son? If it be said that thinking or reason in all men is capable of that which Descartes ostensibly accomplished, then the autonomy of Descartes' reason is denied in favor of a reason common to all men, or some power behind that common reason. Then, too, Descartes' assured starting point proves to be a very tentative one indeed, and a very great act of faith. If the autonomous mind is the starting point and is ultimate, then what common ground is there with any other mind? Other minds are then reduced to aspects of our own experience and as creations of our own sovereign mind. Fallible man can speak only a fallible word. Man, the creature, can utter only a limited and tentative word. 
however much he may strain after a self-created certainty. Man's words are many and various. Our minds change over the years, as do our tastes and perspectives. Even in heaven or in the new creation, man's word will be a limited word and always restricted to that which God chooses to have man know. Deuteronomy 29.29 God's word is of necessity not only infallible, but it is a binding word. Every word of God is law, because it, in some sense, binds man, is authoritative over him, or declares infallibly what God has done in the history of his covenant dealings. To limit the law to the Pentateuch is a serious error. In antiquity, the words of a king were binding words. Much more so, the words of God are binding words. They are law. The Bible, in fact, is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New, or Renewed Testament, witnessing to the two great stages of covenant history. The Bible, as a whole, is God's covenant word or law, his declaration of the history and nature of his covenant. A covenant book is thus a canonical book. It is a rule of faith, its law. The books of the Bible are canonical because they are covenantal. If our view of the covenant is antinomian, then we have neither a covenant nor a canon, only a book for vaguely spiritual and more moral counsel. It is then not in essence an infallible word. While scripture has many words, it is in essence one word, and is so spoken of in Deuteronomy 4.2. With the close of the canon, the words now stop, Revelation 22.18-19, and 19, and the one unified word remains. Judgment is promised in Revelation 22.18-19 to all who add or detract from the word, because an altered covenant law is no longer the law itself but a human substitute for the law. Thus, where the law is denied, the canon soon becomes a problem, and discussions ensue about the value or place of this or that portion of Scripture, because antinomianism breaks the link between the ideas of an infallible canon, which is covenant, law, and gospel, all in one, a sovereign God whose salvation is not the destruction of law, but the declaration of the righteousness of his law in demanding atonement, and in requiring of the atoned that the righteousness of the law be fulfilled in them, Romans 8.4. Antinomianism quickly becomes weak and flabby in its use and defense of Scripture. It has no sovereign word from the sovereign God, only a beautiful story and some touching appeals by a begging God. Scripture gives us no such word. The answer to the great antinomianism is clear-cut. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4 It is that every word that man must hear, believe, and obey. It is the infallible word and there is no other kind of word from God. Infallibility is an, an inescapable concept in fact. It is the locale of infallibility which is in question. The canon or rule of life and faith is either from God or from man. It is either the canon of covenant law, or it is the canon of man's word as law. Section 6. The Command of Word A very common opinion today holds that the Bible is inspired where it speaks of faith and morals, but fully a product of its times, where it touches on matters of history and the sciences, or the natural world. We are thus told by many that they are genuinely orthodox, even while denying the historicity of Genesis 1-11, through the historicity of Jonah, and various statements which seem to set scripture at odds with modern science. The Bible, they say, is infallible where faith and morals are concerned, but history and nature are outside its province. The recent origins of this opinion are neo-orthodox and Barthian. The roots, however, go back into Neoplatonism and its contempt of material reality, and finally into ancient Persian dualism, implicit in its doctrine, called Inspiriato Fundamentalis, 
is a division of reality into two spheres. Van Til has observed with respect to this theory, quote, This theory appears very attractive to many serious-minded Christians today. In the first place, it fits in with the common distinction made by modern thought between religious and scientific truth. It is commonly held that the two are quite distinct from one another. Science is then supposed to deal with the spatial-temporal world, while religion deals with the moral and spiritual values that are thought of as being independent of spatial-temporal facts. In the second place, if one accepts the theory of fundamental inspiration, one can let biblical criticism have its own free course. It is then maintained that all the religious truth taught in Scripture remains untouched even if criticism should prove the non-historicity of many of the facts recorded in Scripture. With respect to this theory, it ought to be observed at once that it is itself a part of the whole non-Christian scheme of interpretation of life. In the first place, the whole distinction between religious and historical truth is absolutely false from a Christian point of view. The resurrection of Christ is an historical fact and upon it, together with our other historical facts, the truth of the religion of Christianity depends. Redemption has been historically mediated. It was in history by historical persons that sin was committed. It was therefore also in history by the Son of God, assuming a human nature and paying the penalty for sin on the cross, that sin is removed. We need, therefore, an authoritative interpretation of the once-for-all significance of these redemptive historical facts. There is no Christian religion apart from history. Here again, Barth and his school are on the side of modernism. Barth, as well as the modernists, is virtually indifferent to the historicity of the facts of redemption, that is, the real significance of redemption. According to Barth, is ideational rather than historical. In the Incarnation, Christ only touches history as a tangent touches a circle. Redemption is, according to this point of view, a process by which men are taken out of the historical and made something super-historical. It is no wonder that with such a conception of history, Barth and his school are indifferent to Bible criticism and ridicule the theory of an infallible Bible." End quote. Such a doctrine, in effect, raptures a man out of history even while he is in it. It makes the faith non-historical and hence irrelevant. For all such, it is not only history and nature which are outside of God, but also faith and morals ultimately. The reason is simply the doctrine of God implied in this theory. God does not speak infallibly regarding history and nature, we are asked to believe. Such a God is not sovereign, nor is he literally then the maker of heaven and earth and the determiner of all history. He is a figure outside of creation, giving moral and religious counsel to alien world. Not surprisingly, the advocates of this theory are uniformly antinomian. If they profess to honor God's law, it is on a selective basis. Laws against murder, but not necessarily capital punishment for murder. Laws against adultery, but not the death penalty for it. Laws against theft, but no laws for restitution, and so on. Such a principle of select selective obedience is not obedience to God, but rather obedience to our own selective and superior reason and conscience. Instead of a sovereign God, we have a sovereign man. Scripture is reinterpreted to remove its offense, and while still used to substantiate man's claims to be the humble and obedient servant of God. If God is indeed our Lord and maker of heaven and earth, then he can speak only infallibly about nature and history. His word is then a binding law, and the op operating premise of man in every sphere of life and thought. Our eschatology will then reflect his lordship, an infallible word which deals, as the Bible plainly does, with history and nature implies the manifest duty of man to exercise dominion in those spheres in the name of God. The Bible is a command word. 
we are regularly told by antinomians that God, for example, does not require us to tithe any longer. Rather, he supposedly wants our free will gifts only. Of course, any decision to tithe involves man's will also, and his free exercise thereof, but the tithe makes clear, as the whole law does, what the will of God is and what our duty is. We can obey or disobey, but to set the terms of obedience and the nature of the obedience by our will is to deny God's sovereignty and his sovereign claim over us. Because the Bible is a command word, it is not designed nor does it speak to satisfy our curiosity, but rather to declare God's purpose and law and to command our faith in and obedience thereto. The command word of a sovereign God can only be an infallible word and a law word. The Bible does not seek a rational man's assent, because this rational man is a myth. It speaks to a fallen and depraved man, whose need is the word of life and the way of life, Jesus Christ, and the law of that life and person. A command word is an impossibility for the inspiratio fundamentalis doctrine. Its God cannot speak such a word. To say, then, that we believe one aspect of Scripture, its teachings concerning faith and morals, but not another, its teachings concerning history and science, is to deceive ourselves and to lie to God. By setting ourselves up as judges over what is true and untrue in His Word, and by ruling Him out of nature and history in any sovereign sense, we deny that He has any infallible word for man in any sense. Man lives in nature and history. He acts in nature and history. If man is more active in nature and history than God is, then it is the word of man which rules us quite logically. Such a God can only tell us to leave the world, not how to exercise dominion over it. The word of man then becomes the command word for history and nature. Section 7. Infallible Man Salvation is a concern common to all political theorists and activists, because the world as it exists is obviously not right. Political theories are thus presented as plans of salvation, although they are not labeled as such. Basic to all non-Christian political thought since Plato is the attempt to save man by political efforts on the part of man through the state. God and the supernatural are ruled out as inadmissible. What saves man must come from man. This means statist power. Since an authoritative, binding, and saving word from God is ruled out, it means an authoritative word from man. That word must be the right word, the binding word. Rousseau raised this question at the beginning of the social contract. Quote, However strong a man, he is never strong enough to remain master always, unless he transform his might into right, and obedience into duty. Hence we have come to speak of the right of the strongest, a right which, seemingly assumed in irony, has, in fact, become established in principle. But the meaning of the phrase has never been adequately explained. Strength is a physical attribute, and I fail to see how any moral sanction can attach to its effects. To yield to the strong is an act of necessity, not of will. At most, it is the result of a dictate of prudence. How, then, can it become a duty? End quote. Man needs a standard, a criterion for right, duty, and justice. What the sovereign God of Scripture has once provided needed now to be succeeded for Rousseau by a new sovereign with a new word. This new sovereign was for Rousseau the body politic, or the state, for example, the state as the totality of its people. It is the people who are sovereign but the people in social contract organizing a state. By definition, this sovereign power is the inerrant voice of the people. Quote, now, the sovereign people, having no existence outside that of in the individuals who compose it, has, and can have, no interest at variance with theirs. Consequently, 
The sovereign power need give no guarantee to, all, to its subjects, since it is impossible that the body should wish to injure all its members, nor, as we shall see later, can it injure any single individual. The sovereign, by merely existing, is always what it should be, but the same does not hold true of the relation of subject to sovereign. In spite of common interest, there can be no guarantee that the subject will observe his duty to the sovereign unless means are found to ensure his loyalty. End quote. Here we have the exaltation of the state into the truly grand inquisitor of all history. The state is infallible, but the people are not, and means must be found to ensure the loyalty of the people. In Rousseau's words, quote, it may be necessary to compel a man to be free. End quote. Freedom, in this sense, is the freedom of the political machine to fulfill its goals. Rousseau stresses this again and again. The state incorporates and incarnates the general will, which is infallible. The individual will cannot set itself against the general will. Quote, the general will is always right and ever tends to the public advantage. End quote. There can be no freedom for anyone or any institution from this omnipotent, indestructible, inerrant, and infallible general will. The church must emphatically be brought into submission to it. Like Hobbes, Rousseau demanded that, quote, all should be brought into a single political whole, without which no state and no government can ever be firmly established, end quote. Rousseau's estate is a corporate and mystical body. It is a merger of the Christian ideas of the church and of God to constitute a divine human order on earth. The political order was converted by Rousseau into man's new God, Savior, and church. Infallibility was thus transferred from God and his word to the general will and its political order. Rousseau's legislator is thus one who, quote, must in every way be an extraordinary figure in the state. He is so by reason of his genius, and no less so by that of his, of his office. He is neither magistrate nor sovereign. His function is to constitute the state, end quote. This great man who lays down the foundations for the democratic state, which incarnates the general will, is a man-god who has no contact with our nature and is something of a god or, if more than one, gods. The experts who thus create this new social order are, like Plato's lawgiver and Machiavelli's founder prince, more than ordinary human beings. Quote, In order to discover what social regulations are best suited to nations, there is needed a superior intelligence which can survey all the passions of mankind, though itself exposed to none, an intelligence having no contact with our nature, yet knowing it to the full, an intelligence, the well-being of which is independent of our own, yet willing to be concerned with it, which, finally, viewing the long perspectives of time and preparing for itself a day of glory as yet far distant, will labor in one century to reap its reward in another. In short, only God's can give laws to men. End quote. Here we see the genesis of the new gods, the intellectuals and the scientific socialist experts. We cannot understand the arrogance of the intellectuals and the scientific experts unless we realize that modern political thought has called them into being as the new gods of creation. Rousseau required a purely civil profession of faith, for example, faith in the state as Lord rather than in the God of Scripture. Quote, Any man who after acknowledging these articles of faith, proceeds to act as though he did not believe them, is deserving of the death penalty, end quote. The state is the order of salvation. Hence, quote, anyone who dares to say outside the church there can be no salvation should be banished from the state, end quote. 
Rousseau's ideas, despite all their contradiction, met with a ready response because man's faith was now in man as incarnated in the state. Condorcet saw the future as a happy road of progress, because the West, meaning the humanistic thinkers of the West, had discovered, quote, simple truths and infallible methods, end quote. John Stuart Mill, in On Liberty, presented the individual as sovereign, over himself and over his own mind at least. Herbert Spencer held that every man has the freedom to do all that he wills, provided that he did not infringe on the same freedom of any other man. Infallibility in all this was not denied. It was transferred from God and his word to nature and the laws of nature, and then to the state or to the individual man. Spencer's future society is a millennial picture, not unlike Marx's perfect communism. The new man lives then in a new estate made possible by the new freedom of the true state. For Spencer, the new infallibility was in the evolutionary process. The new infallibility has had its profits. Claude Henry de Saint Simon and Auguste Comte each saw himself as the inspired prophet of a new age for mankind. Saint Simon wrote of the voice of God issuing, quote, through his mouth, end quote, and of himself as the Messiah of the new creed. Comte saw himself as both the new prophet and pope of the post-Christian era. More than that, he saw himself as being identical with the great being or God. For example, humanity at its general will. Rousseau's legislators were asserting their presence. Mazzini saw himself also as mankind's prophet savior, although he also identified the Messiah with the whole people of the nation which moved into the new age. Hegel asserted the infallible nature of the new state and its absolute power. Proudhon, affirming man's absolute liberty, declared that man must remake himself by defeating and killing the God of Scripture. Only then could man realize himself. In more recent years, the plain speaking of these earlier humanists is gone, but the presumption and faith still remain. Skinner is no less Rousseau's God-man than Comte, and the same is true of countless other scientists and intellectuals. In brief, infallibility is not a doctrine limited to theological studies, it is a fact of contemporary life, with the new gods claiming for themselves that power which properly belongs only to God. Therefore, any discussion of infallibility, which confines itself to a discussion of what theologians have said, is blind to the problems of our time. The new infallibility doctrine confronts us in art, politics, and the sciences. Failure to challenge these rivals of God and enemies of His word and kingdom is faithlessness and incompetence. To sit idly by while these new doctrines of infallibility parade their pretensions and to assume that a Sunday morning assertion concerning scripture suffices is cowardice and desertion. Section 8. The Infallible Act and Word. At the very heart of the doctrine of infallibility is the aseity or self-being of God. God's every word and act is infallible, not because it meets some standard of accuracy and truth and passes that test, but because God's word is the ultimate word, and there's nothing beyond God whereby we can judge, test, or prove God's word. God is emphatic. I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 45, 14, 18, 21, and 22. Not only are all things made by him, Genesis 1, 1, John 1, 3, but all things can be truly understood and tested only in terms of his word. There is nothing outside of God to determine God or to condition or affect any word or act of God. Whatever God is, does, or says is ultimate, absolute, and infallible, because He is God, and there is none else. God is not governed, predestined, 
nor is he influenced by anything outside of himself. Every effort, therefore, to prove infallibility implies another standard, and it undercuts the infallibility of God and his word. Our purpose, thus, is not to prove infallibility, but rather to strip men of the evasions which obscure the doctrine. It is an inescapable doctrine. Man denies it to God only to assert it for himself. The pretensions of man's doubts must thus be exposed, and its claims confounded. God's word, being an uninfluenced and self-determined, or God-determined, word is the only pure word, the only word which is beyond circumstances. Our words are circumstantial, motivated by the needs of the circumstance or situation. But God's creative word creates history in all circumstance, and also his written word then governs all history and circumstances. When man therefore denies God, man seeks to achieve his own infallible word and act, the gratuitous words and act which are beyond circumstances. This means an unmotivated word and act. This means thus living beyond causality, for example, escaping from the matrix of creation into a situation of self-transcendence. Hence, the proliferation of senseless, causeless crimes of what one psychiatrist called, quote, rebels without a cause, end quote. Gullamy, Apollinari, 1880-1918, called by Shattuck, quote, the impresario of the avant-garde, end quote, was a champion of the gratuitous act, iacti gratuit, as the means to human freedom. Uncaused wickedness was for him, as for the Marquis de Sade and others, a liberation, because uncaused wickedness manifests a purely disinterested act, unmotivated evil. Because such an act is performed only to satisfy a totally personal whim, it becomes a free, uncaused, and therefore divine act. In that act, the perpetrator becomes a god, because the act has no external reference and no relationship to the situation, to gain or loss, to good or evil, it is ostensibly a pure fact, a free act, or an infallible act or word. Apollinari thus found the opportunity to set forth this faith in pornography. In Anze Media Vergis, the hero is a presentation of this liberation by pure evil. God being good, the anti-god finds his deity in pure evil. His hero, Mani, after a life of frightful evil, is sentenced to death. He then rapes savagely a 12-year-old girl who decides to yield her virginity to the condemned man. Following this act, Moni strangled the little girl after gouging out her eyes while she screamed hideously. Already under death sentence, he had nothing to fear, and his act was thus pure evil, uncaused evil. In terms of this, the rise of senseless crimes becomes more understandable. The pure or uncaused act of evil is a declaration of independence from God and man, it is a denial of the limitations of creatureliness and an affirmation of autonomy. Such an act of pure evil becomes a necessary act whenever a man seeks to demonstrate his independence from God and man. It is his necessary escape from the act conditioned by God's requirements and man's demands and pressures. The nemesis of this pure act of evil is its necessity. God's every word and act are totally and absolutely self-caused. God never needs to prove himself. The man whose passion it is to become God must work to effect his pure act of evil, and it can only be a sporadic act. The rest of his life is governed by creaturely necessities which finally overwhelm him. He must eat, sleep, 
live in a world of supplies provided by others, and finally he dies. Thus, his pure act of evil is a necessary and occasional act, and it bears the stamp because of its necessity and its nature of rebellion against God, as anything but a pure and free act. However, the man whose passion is to become God tries only the harder to become capable of the pure act and the pure word. The rise of pornography is, is basic to this quest. Because God declares that His word is the good and the holy word, the anti-God muse pronounce the evil and the profane world. Modern pornography, beginning with the Marquis de Sade and coming into its own after World War II, is a religious concern. It is man's attempt to, to declare a pure word describing a pure act. In pornography, we have, first, a radical concern for lawlessness. The appeal of pornography is its far-out violation of moral law. The more intense the separation from God's law, the more successful is the pornography in this new perspective. The greater the distance from the moral and the decent act, the greater the supposed freedom and hence the actual pleasure. Second, in pornography there is no concern for other people. The interest is in self-gratification and self-expression. Thus, just as the radical violation of God's law proclaims a supposed independence from God's law, so the radical contempt for the sexual partners indicates a supposed independence from other people. The sexual partner thus cannot be loved. The partner is used and hated. Dr. Robert Stroller, a professor at the UCLA School of Medicine, has written in the Archives of General Psychiatry that, except for a few rare individuals, most human sexuality is generated by hostility. People are least loving when making love. This is clearly true of modern existential man. He cannot love another person because autonomy and the passion to be God require an independence from love and the dependence love creates. Hence, what modern man calls love is really sexual exploitation. But even sexual exploitation establishes the fact that the exploited is needed. Hence, ultimate sex becomes solitary sex, masturbation. A socialist magazine thus presents masturbation as the basic aspect of women's liberation. Classes in how to masturbate are held by women with a textbook on the subject, and the entire class masturbates as directed. We are told that, quote, Masturbation is one of the few acts going that can truly stand alone, and it requires only a quorum of one, end quote. E. Shorter has shown that masturbation is in the main a modern phenomenon. It is a product of the world of Descartes, the world in which man is ostensibly autonomous and is his own universe. In such a world, solitary sex dependent not on a partner but the individual's imagination and body alone, becomes ultimate sex. Pornography is in essence masturbatory literature. When it leads to any sexual act involving others, it is still a totally self-centered act. Third, pornography is concerned with exploratory sex, with discovering the potentialities for still more lawless forms of sexuality, and it derives its pleasure from such discoveries and acts. The anti-god must have unlimited potentiality, and hence no boundaries can be placed on the form that the sexual act exploits. The pages of such publications as Penthouse report continually on the ostensible ecstasies of new devices, new forms of lawlessness and perversion, and new reaches of the pornographic imagination in sex. Many of these letters and accounts are to be taken as fiction, although by no means all of them. In any case, the intent is the same. By formulating and expressing their evil imagination, they are finding an ostensible freedom in the pure word, the lawless, the uncaused word. More and more, the forms of devised pornographic evil depart from anything which can be called a physical sexual urge. 
This adds to their pleasure. They become thereby a pure evil and an uncaused act, the gratuitous and pure word expressed by letter or book. Such writings, as example of the pure word, become like a Bible to many millions, who read them eagerly in order to gain stimulus to soar into their own realm of the pure word, if only in imagination, or the pure act in performance. Profane language meets a like purpose. Profanity is less and less what it once was, an outburst of anger or frustration. Such profanity is caused by an event and is not free. Modern profanity and obscenity are increasingly uncaused and gratuitous. For many people, the more causeless and outrageous the situation, the better the obscenity. Thus, one young man, supposedly an artist, but in reality a social parasite, walked up to a middle-aged woman coming out of church, whom he had never seen before, and told her that what she needed for salvation was liberation. You can be free, he told her, if you copulate with me on the grass, or else open up my fly here and now and suck me. If not, you will be a slave to your mythical God and to middle-class hang-ups, he added. He defended his words on the grounds that he was promoting true religion, freedom for man, and took off before the police were called. There was nothing dirty about his words, he insisted, and it was her reaction which was dirty. His was the pure and liberating word. Enough has been said to indicate that man's attempts at infallibility have social consequences. The provincialism of the church, whereby it regards the doctrine of infallibility as something having reference only to the Bible, is a deadly one. It is a tacit denial of the sovereignty of God. Because God is sovereign, there is nothing in all creation which can be understood in anything other than theological terms. All reality is inescapably a theological fact. There is no valid interpretation for anything except in terms of God and His infallible Word. Every non-Christian category of thought is thus either a falsification or misapplication of God's Word, or an attempt to use God's meaning while denying God, and it is thus an anti-Word. Because every unbeliever is an antichrist, so ultimately every word of the unbeliever becomes an anti-Word, a word against God and His meaning, which is the only meaning. It becomes a word in defiance of God a word declared to establish man as his own God. It is this that finds expression in the ideas of the pure act and the pure word of the anti-Christian man.